It's just so great that we have a chance, especially coming out of a busy holiday season where we are bombarded with um, everything from holiday parties to family obligations to work and just all of the, the swirl of life that we can slow down and be reminded of how God is working in our church and to be brought back to this value of community and relationship and honestly, even practically, for us to just be reminded in spaces at RCC where there is movement and ministry happening, like our women's ministry. We're so grateful for the women who led that retreat and the women who lead that ministry and give spaces for connection and growth in relationship. And we're grateful for Emma being willing to share her story. It's not easy for, for people to just watch you talk, right? And so I'm just so glad that you're here. I'm so glad that we get a glimpse of the beauty of the community that God is cultivating here at Roswell. I'm selfishly glad to see there's not one but two Arsenal shirts in the building on the North London Derby. So thank you for that as well. Um, hey, listen, we've been, as we've entered a new year, we've been very intentional about asking and praying and, and considering where God has sent us. We don't believe that God has just called us to go to church. We believe that he has sent us into our lives with a purpose. And being people who I would say, for the most part, look at our spiritual growth and identify the single biggest barrier to our spiritual growth as a schedule, it's helpful to look back at the purpose that God has sent us to so we can be very intentional about prioritizing those purposes in our life. We always make time for the things that we love. And so if we are a people who have our desires and loves shaped by the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we'll begin to prioritize the shape of that purpose in our day-to-day -day schedule, right? And we talked about that last week. We talked about how God has sent us to be these desiring people that are driven ultimately by what we love, what we believe, and what we value. That's how we're formed and shaped. And so we looked last week and ended at this last metric of if we were really desiring and following Jesus. And if you remember, what scripture said was one of the easiest metrics. John wrote this, right? The easiest metric to know if you are following and desiring God is how you're loving your neighbors. If you you love people, then that's a good indicator that you're loving God well. He says, if you say you love God and you don't love people, that's like a warning light in your car. Something is going on. And I think all we need to do to recognize how powerful relationships and community are, especially in church, is to think about this question. When you ask people, what is your best, most meaningful, um, whatever positive adjective that you want to put in there, experience around your faith, around God, around church, 99% of the time, the answer to that question is going to involve a relationship, community, and other people, right? Like almost every time. When you ask somebody, tell me about your faith. Tell me about those high points with God. It's almost always going to involve other people. Someone who is mentoring them. A community that walked through pain well with them. Watching God answer prayers in the lives of those around them. Doing ministry with people that they deeply love. There's something about community that forms and excites us in this really powerful way. Here's the other end of the spectrum. If you ask people, what is the worst, most hurtful, most damaging experience you've had with God? The answer, 99% of the time, is always going to deal with other people. Uh, where there's been betrayal, where there's been judgment, where there's been spiritual abuse and manipulation, where there has been dishonesty, where there has been exclusion, where there has been this rules-based rejection, all of the most damaging aspects of our faith experiences can be traced back to people. So it's interesting. 
It's interesting. The best part about church is the people. The worst part about church is the people. Here's why I think that is. God designed us a very particular way. He designed us to interact and be social beings, right? Because of that, there is this deep core in us that is designed to engage and connect into living community. That core is valuable, it's sacred, it is a part of God's design. And when that core is fed and nurtured, we flourish. When that core is neglected or abused, we find ourselves in immense pain. It's because we were sent together for a purpose. It's this core part of who we are as people. It's this core part of why the church exists. So today we're going to look at the fact that we were sent to community. We were sent together with a purpose. God didn't just send us into community so it wouldn't feel awkward with me talking to one person in the auditorium. That's not why he designed the church that way. He didn't send us into community so we could really impress people who don't know Jesus by the large crowd that we can draw, right? Listen, if Texas A&M can get that many people to show up on their campus, drawing a crowd isn't that big a deal right? Like that place is a cult, okay? And so they can get a lot of people to show up. <laughs> Safe place to say that, I feel like in North Georgia, right? Um, and so listen, he didn't call us together so we could impress people with a crowd. He didn't call us together so we could judge each other. He didn't call us together so we could look really put together. He called us together for a purpose. There's a reason that God created us to do this thing in community. And we want to dig into that today. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Galatians chapter 6. And, and again, context is king when we're reading scripture. We don't want to take a single verse, pluck it out of thin air, and start trying to do life application with it. That's how we end up hearing people telling us to wait on a spaceship and wear some robes. We want to avoid that. We want to understand the holistic flow of what it is that God's word is teaching. So, in this letter to the Galatians, what's just happened is we've seen Paul write about how when we are dwelling in the Spirit, there's these fruits that happen in our lives. And I can't wait to actually dig into that passage after Easter with you guys. It's unbelievably cool to see how we cultivate these fruits of the Spirit when we follow Jesus. So as he's ending that, he says, when we're living by the Spirit, we are going to have to address how we teach and treat one another. And in 26 in chapter 5, which isn't on the screen, he says, let us not be conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. So as he's telling people, these are the fruits of a life that follows God. He ends that with addressing how they treat other people. This is just another reminder of scripture that we are wired to do life together. So then he digs into this idea of what community looks like in chapter six. So he's come off really the same idea that John wrote about last week. If we are desiring God, that desire and love and worship of God is going to create an obedience that is marked by how we treat one another. So he says, listen, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So he gives us this window into the purpose of community. There's actually an active engagement going on here. He says that when you do life with other people, there are going to be people that sin. There are going to be transgressions. There's going to be imperfection. There's going to be conflict. He gives them a roadmap. How do you deal with that? 
with gentleness and grace, lest you too fall into a trap of sin, which we'll get into in this next part. And then I love this part because he frames so well the model of what this means. Because people hear restoring and grace and catching somebody in transgressions, and, and we turn it into this weird, um, this weird deal. But, but look at what he says and how he frames it. Bear one another's burdens. Bear one another's burdens. This is really the impetus of what a biblical community looks like. That we are a people that bear one another's burdens. That's really the first main point that we want to look at today. We were created to bear one another's burdens. That's why we're here. We're sent into community because we need other people around us. All of us are going to have these blind spots, these areas where we fall into temptation, these transgressions, these imperfections. We're going to have brokenness and trauma and hurt. And one of the ways that God has created us to step and move through that into healing is through relationship. And that happens when we understand that our purpose in community is to bear one another's burdens. So how do we prioritize that? There's two ways that we prioritize it. We do this as an individual and we do this corporately. And we're going to see this theme throughout all three sections here. Is that we have this individual priority and then we have a corporate priority. So let's talk about our individual priority of bearing one another's burdens. It's actually, I think, the most difficult part, especially in the South. And I think we just, we're very good at this. The most difficult part of bearing one another's burdens in the South and southern culture is not that we're aware of what other people have going on. It's actually when we allow other people to know what burdens that we need them to help us bear. We have this societal pressure that we want to build the facade, right? Like we need to look like everything's put together. We need to look like we have it all figured out. We need to look like our kids behave. We need to, we're almost, by the way, just full transparency in um, four figures of damage to the basement over Christmas break. So like just vulnerability for a moment, but we don't want people to know that, right? Like everything is sparkly and good in our life looks exactly like our Instagram page. Right? Or TikTok, if I can Gen Z that for a minute. Um, you guys know that's run by Chinese intelligence, right? Like, don't stop. Um, so we're kind of slow to let people bear our burdens because this fear of what they're going to think about is if they really knew what our burdens were. Right, and this starts, I think, in adolescence where we're taught that culture is almost predatory. That if we show a weakness or a chink in the armor or a way that we might not fit in or a way that we might not be able to add value to an organization, that we're gonna be rejected. And unfortunately, sometimes we live in a broken world that proves us right. And so we enter community spaces and the idea of someone knowing our burdens, much less helping us bear that burden is terrifying. Because it brings us back to these places where there's been rejection, where there has been judgment, where we haven't fit in, where we haven't done it the right way, where we've maybe been at fault. And so nothing in us wants to threaten this need that we have of acceptance. And so we hide. And we can hide in plain sight. We can hide in a small group. We can hide in service. We can hide in a worship center. We, there's a lot of places that we can hide. Because we would rather struggle alone than risk the rejection that might happen if someone really knew what we were dealing with. If somebody really knew that we had a temper problem, if somebody really knew that our marriage wasn't perfect, if somebody really knew that we didn't have as much money, you know, as, as we would like them to think we do, if somebody knew that we really weren't as successful, if somebody knew that addiction was something that we dealt with, if, if someone knew the past of, of our mental health issues, if somebody knew the spiritual trauma that had been enacted on us by other people, what might they think? So we can't let them know. And it's interesting that this starts in adolescence, but even as we're adults, and so, um, 
When we were in Indiana, we were um, starting a men's ministry thing in our church, and we had this group of guys go through um, the study, and it was interesting that as we were talking about the need that we all felt of community, um, we kind of talked through why we didn't do that. And there were even a couple of guys that had known that there were guys in the circle seemed like cool people that they wanted to get to know. But these are grown men in their 40s saying, I was scared to go up and talk to you because I thought you might feel like you were too cool for me. But in that moment of vulnerability, basically what they were saying is, I wanted to reach out and have a connection, but it was too risky for me and I didn't want to be vulnerable. And one of the reasons why we don't bear each other's burdens isn't because we don't want to. We would rather help someone else bear their burdens than be vulnerable and risky with what's really going on with us. And so we just never show them burdens. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. (laughs) I'm good, right? And so how do we get over this fear? How do we trust in the grace of God that this is a place where it is safe to take this risk? How do we open ourselves up and start to share? And I think we've got to ask ourselves the question, what is motivating our hiding? What are we afraid of? And what does the gospel say about that, right? And so really, it's, it's, it's not easy, but it's a simple concept. If we really want to be loved and love as Christ loved us, it starts with us risking vulnerability with people around us. And I don't mean indiscriminately. I don't mean without boundaries. I don't mean in a foolish way. I mean in wisdom and discernment with people that know you, that you trust. Are we able to be open and give those people a transparent account of what our hearts are struggling with? Where we feel hurt, where we're scared, where there's anxiety, like who really knows what's going on with us? See, we've been sent to community with a purpose. And if we don't fully trust, which is hard and terrifying, then we miss out on the fullness of what the community of the church is supposed to be. So that's our individual responsibility. Let me speak briefly to our corporate responsibility. We've got to be a place that's safe, okay? Like if we want to be a church where people are open and sharing their burdens, we have to be a safe place. So we want to be super intentional about a few different things. One of them is structural. We want to create places for people to be vulnerable. So when we have small groups, when we have studies, when we call each other into relationships on serving teams, when we're doing mission trips, when we are together, we want to be a church that prioritizes time for people to connect and be known. That's number one. Here's number two. We have to care for people well. So you might remember um, in the fall, we actually had a trauma-driven trauma care webinar that we did where we actually got some equipping and training from a professional on how to be trauma-informed as we're engaging and caring about people. We want to continue to be a place that is providing training and equipping so we're a church that takes seriously that when people are sharing with us, these are real hurts. This is not small. This is not trivial. There are really damages that happen as we all do life together. So we want to know how to care for people well. You'll hear over and over again at RCC, you were loved. And I fully believe that we believe that. And people feel that when they come here. And one of the reasons that that's true is because we take this seriously. We want to care for people well. Third thing is we've got to be safe people. I'm not asking us to be perfect because we'll never be perfect. But we want to hold people's vulnerability well. We want to keep confidence when we need to keep confidence right? We, we, we want to be people who don't gossip. We want to be people who don't judge and slander. We want to be people who follow up and show up and connect and fulfill our promises. We want to be a people that earn the trust of people who, for very valid reasons, struggle to trust others. And it doesn't happen overnight, so we've got to be in it for the long haul. Nobody trusts like a light switch is being turned on. It's a gradual process that happens over time, so we're patient, We pursue and we connect. And so that's our corporate responsibility. 
for us to live into the community that we've been called to be, for us to prioritize caring for God's people, we have to be patient pursuers that build trust over time so that we can all begin to take down the facade that society calls us to build and let people help us with our burdens. So here's the second thing that we're gonna see because here's why that's not easy. Okay, here's why that's not easy. He gets into that, and it's almost like he knew what he was talking about. It's like he'd been to church before. He says, for if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. So let's talk about what this says because at first glance, this looks like a contradictory statement. He just said, bear one another's burden. Now he wants me to bear my own load. I'm very confused about what to do right now. And am I, am I supposed to think I'm nothing? Is that what God wants? Like, if you don't think you're nothing, then you're sinning. Is that what this says? So we've got to dig into this a little bit. So we've talked before um, when we were in um, when we were in the Old Testament, we were looking at how there are certain idioms that don't translate well, right? Do you remember we talked about how if somebody three thousand years from now was coming to Earth and picking through the ruins of our society, they would figure out that social media is what killed us. And the second thing they would do would be very confused when they were reading business consultants say things like, "We want this business to go through the roof." Right? And, they, and they, can you imagine the debate around taking, do we take this, we want to take this literally. So how do we get this to go through the roof? Do we launch it through the roof or do we cut a hole first? Um, is this, you know, like how, what has to go through the roof? And there would be all of this really odd stuff with these people arguing over these terms. We, if we could jump forward into the future, would be like, what are you guys talking about? This is just a saying. You've completely misunderstood this. So when, when Paul is writing here and says, if someone thinks he is something when he's nothing, he is not telling us that you better think you're nothing. This was actually a proverb that was fairly widely written in the Hellenistic age at the time. Here's the rough translation of what this is saying. Don't think more of yourself than you should. We all know people who are like this, right? That think that the world revolves around them, that the sun rises and sets with them. They think that they're a really big deal. And what he's saying in this proverb is that none of us are God. None of us are elevated above other people. None of us should fall into this trap where we think more of ourselves than we should. That, that's the proverb that we need to translate because otherwise this can do really weird things like, oh, how do I think I'm nothing? I'm nothing. Well, we're not nothing because in Ephesians a couple of weeks ago, we saw that God called us a masterpiece through the way that we were made a new creation in Jesus Christ. Clearly God doesn't think we're nothing. Clearly, we're his beloved. So that can't be what this says. It just says, listen, be careful that you don't start to think more of yourself than you should. Then, so what do we do with the burdens? Like, whose burdens are we supposed to carry? He, he's reframing the concept here a bit. So when he says, um, but lest each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor, that's an extension of the concept where he's talking about sharing one another's burdens. What he's saying here is that we don't want to be judged by comparing ourselves to be better or worse than the person that we just restored in sin, right? He's saying when you are thinking about what gives you worth, you think about yourself. You're not comparing yourself to the guy next to you. And here's why I think he says this is because this is so easy for us. And this is one of the reasons why I think church hurt can happen is because here, here's the simple idea, okay? This is basically what he's saying. Pride's going to kill the purpose in our community. 
Pride is going to kill the purpose in our community. He's saying you need to boast in yourself and not your other person. Carry your own load. Here's what that means. You alone are responsible for the way you are seeking to obey God. He's not saying we don't need help with our baggage. He's saying that God doesn't look at you and say, oh, well, you're better than that person, so I guess you're fine. He's reframing our perspective and how we see ourselves with the Lord. He's not saying that you shouldn't have help. He's saying you need to take responsibility for yourself, not consider yourself better or worse than someone else. It all goes back to comparison in this text. And, and we all understand this because look, when you go back up to the very beginning, when he's talking about restoring someone, he says, do it as a spirit of gentleness. Watch out or you're going to be tempted too. When someone is sinning, when someone is caught, when someone messes up, there's this human impulse in us to be like, oh, I'm better than that. And I think it goes back to that need of acceptance and validation, but like we have this internal competition almost where we want to look around and say, I'm better than that person. At least I'm not like that. You saw this in the gospels with people, right? Like you see Jesus tell stories around this concept where we have this reflex where we want to build these standards around what is good and what is bad. And the more that we can feel good about ourselves, the more we're going to feel a peace and acceptance. That's just not the mind that Christ has created in us. That doesn't follow the call that we have in community because that doesn't lead to us bearing each other's burdens. That leads to us using other people as a means to an end. And this is where you see, unfortunately, in religious communities, people leverage ideas like restoring into control and abuse and judgment and shame. Because when we're comparing ourselves and when it's about us being better than other people, we don't want to restore people because we love them and want to see them healed. We want to make sure that they know you were wrong. I am the one that's going to help you be right. Do you see the difference there? That's not bearing each other's burdens. That's not what, that's, that's not what we're called to do. Nobody feels safe to be vulnerable when there's the religious police that want to show everybody how good they are and how bad everybody else is. It doesn't reflect the love of God. It doesn't bring healing and vulnerability. And practically, look, here's the other problem with it, is it creates blindness in us to our own sin. That's why he says, be careful lest you be tempted too. When we want to go into religious police mode, instead of bearing burdens and restoring graciously, we love to point out all of the sins that other people struggle with and completely miss the ones that we do. Because subconsciously, here's what we do. Well, mine's sin's not as bad as theirs. And you see this happen with individuals. You see it happen in churches. You see it happen in denominations. You see it happen in cultural time periods, right? Like the American church has a ton to say about sexual sin and immorality. That's good. We should guard against those things. Scripture says they destroy us. The American church, especially the evangelical white American church, is strangely silent about gluttony and greed. Isn't that weird? I wonder why that is. It's super easy for us to want to get around other people that don't struggle with the same things and point to a crowd and say, those people are bad. Like 90% of the problems with the church are driven by this kind of pride. When we begin to think ourselves better than others, when we begin to compare ourselves to others, when we begin to use others' sin to make ourselves feel better, we are allowing pride to infiltrate a community. And there's no safety for vulnerability or grace in a place of pride. Think about the model of Jesus. When he encountered sin, Jesus was perfect. He was the son of God. He literally held creation together with his will. 
He never went at people with, you're not as good as me. It was always a humble, loving invitation into the grace of God. So listen, as a community, if we're going to bear each other's burdens, we have to beware of pride. And I know like we always get real nervous about this, like, well, but too much grace. We don't want to be the people that say sin, do whatever you want. That's not what the text says. At no point when you are faithful to this text is there any danger of the church becoming a place that says, go sin and do whatever you want. That's not what he says. He just says we need to be careful about comparing ourselves to each other because we may not struggle with the same sin as somebody else, but we're going to struggle with sin. We all need grace. And all of us will feel safe and vulnerable to repent and be restored if we know that we're not in a weird spiritual competition with the people around us. Pride will kill a community's purpose. We have to kill the pride in our lives. We've got to kill the pride in our lives. We have to have a humble awareness of our need for Jesus Christ. And we have to willingly engage and love and restore when people sin, even if it's a different sin than we struggle with. That's not the same thing as affirming sin, right? It's engaging it with grace for the purpose of restoration. Those are two very different ideas. So what do we do then? So I love how he finishes this. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap (laughs) from the flesh corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. This isn't advocating a works-based salvation. This goes back to the idea that John talked about, right? Like our actions are going to follow our loves and our worship. So if you are obedient in responding to the grace of God, then the natural gravity of that are going to be those fruits of the Spirit that he talked about in chapter 5. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. He targets our purpose out. He targets our purpose out. He says, a community that's sent with a purpose is going to hunt for good works. We're going to look for opportunities to do good. And I love the encouragement he gives. He says, don't give up. You will reap. It's so easy for us to say, man, I haven't really seen any fruits out of this. I don't know. Maybe we should try something else. And God's like, dude, it's been a week. Like, you know, people waited like 70 years for me to do stuff in the Old Testament, right? You're like, God, I know, but they didn't have the internet. Our, our you know, our attention spans just fried now as a culture. All right. So, so this is why he's giving us this grace of saying, don't give up. Don't give up. I know your attention spans have been shortened by your cell phones. So I need you to remind you, don't give up. Continue doing good. God will be faithful. So are we looking for good works? Do we have eyes that say, where are there opportunities for me to do good? Right? And again, there's corporate and there's individual, right? So like as a corporate body, we have this responsibility to be a place who is constantly looking for good works. You heard a little bit about that from Michael when he gave us the update on Love Shares, right? That we want to have this opportunity to steward our money towards good works, right? We want to steward this ability that we have because of what we've been given to go into a place where people don't have drinking water, to not just drill a well, but for that well to be a platform for them to hear the gospel. You can do both at the same time, and that's what we did, and it's an incredible opportunity. So we have mission partners where we go out both around the world and locally and say, corporately, we want to direct our attention to these good works, 
whether it's the clothes closet here locally, whether it is through Hope Roswell, whether it's through She is Safe, whether it is through our church partners in Budapest, whether it is through Bruno and Camilla, whether it's in Africa with pioneers, we want to, as a church, continually look for opportunities to do good works. We don't ever want to be a place that is centered around, let's go to church and feel good together. It's good to come to church and feel good. You have permission to do that. I'm not saying don't. We just don't want to stop there. Corporately, we have a responsibility to steward what God has given us, to look for those opportunities to do good works. Individually, we have a responsibility to look for opportunities to do good works. And I don't just mean serve in the church, right? Like that's a very Amway pyramid scheme for Jesus way to think about it, okay? We don't wanna just do good works through the lens of, I taught Sunday school and I'm not knocking teaching Sunday school, it's super important. But I think we're also called to look for good works throughout the week. I think we're called to look for opportunities to do good works for our neighbors, for our enemies, for the people at work. Sometimes that might be the same person. I know there's a lot of work from home going on right now. His music's too loud. Maybe buy him some headphones. I don't know, right? So like where are there opportunities for us to do good works in our community? Are, do we have eyes for that? And I know it's hard, right? Like I, I naturally tend to prioritize myself. I'm an only grandchild, actually, and so, like, I was just brought up a certain way, and that way was, oh, what do you want? Here you go. And it seemed like it worked for me as a kid. Here's the problem. It created a selfishness in me that I have to be super aware of, because if I'm not careful, my, my first instinct to say, what do I need right now? What do I want? You know, I forgot the Arsenal games this weekend. Maybe Steve can preach last minute. Um, he said no, which I'm cool with, but um, check the game on my phone later. It's, it's fine. So listen, I naturally have this selfish tendency, and I think to some degree we all do. And so if we're going to prioritize being a sent community, we've got to prioritize having eyes for the needs of the people around us, sometimes even before they ask. And as we do that, it goes back to this idea of building trust, that we are people who care, not with an agenda, but because we've been cared for, that we are a people who forgive and love because we have experienced the forgiveness and love of God through his son, Jesus Christ. And so the beautiful thing about our church is this is not aspirational. This, this is a picture of who RCC is. This is a picture of who we have been. This is a picture of who we will continue to be in the future as we are being obedient to who God's called us to be. This is a good reminder as we get into this busy season that we want to be a place that corporately and individually is constantly looking for good works, that is bearing the burdens of one another and being vulnerable, and that is being aware that pride does not kill our ability to love one another. And so how do we do that? Because, you know, I've failed at all three of those probably in the last 24 hours. We continue to lean into what we talked about last night, the foundation of our desires. Last week, you didn't miss a service last night. <laughs> we continue to lean into the foundation of our desires. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ that we were saved by faith because we believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God who died on the cross for our sins and through his death and resurrection forgave us of our sins and gave us new life, new desires and new hearts. And through him, we have eternal life. And so we're constantly reminded that this is not an endless cycle of religious striving. Rather, this text is a continued invitation for us to experience the reality of who we are in Jesus to bathe in his forgiveness and allow that love and new spiritual reality to overflow out of our hearts into the world around us. And so, like we do every week, 
we have the opportunity to celebrate this tangible reminder of who we are and why we do what we do and what has made us new and what drives our loves and affections, and that's the gospel of Jesus. And so as we consider and ponder how we can be a vulnerable people that are sent to love one another, we always start with going back to our foundation. And that's the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so as we pray and as we worship, we have this opportunity to go to our Father knowing that we are loved and forgiven and accepted and that we can trust him to continue to send us into places where the overflow of his grace will bring glory to his name and healing to his people. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have sent us in a community. Even though it's messy and difficult, even though sometimes we get hurt, and even though sometimes we can hurt other people, we thank you that you've given us each other. God, we thank you for this church and the gift that Roswell Community Church is. We ask that you would continue to help us be vulnerable, that we would bear one another's burdens, that we would be aware of pride. God, that you would help us to have eyes for the good works you have prepared for us from the beginning of time, both in our community and around the world. Help us to be anchored in the grace of your son and his death and resurrection. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.